Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. I am joined by a man whose ball just barely crossed the goal line, but he wasn't given the match winner for his goal against Serbia. It is Caleb Rhodes. Am I Cristiano Ronaldo? In this case, you would be. Okay. I mean, in general, you know, I'm team, team messy, but there are worse people to be compared to, I suppose. And I am also joined by the only right back, aside from Trent Alexander-Arnold, to be left out of England's squad this international break. It is Nathan Strauss. Am I? Is that a reference to an actual person, or is it just me? That that's just you. Oh, okay, fair enough. So I'm like the seventh choice English right back. I'll take it, honestly. which honestly is pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's like James Justin levels, right? There, yeah, they're depth at right back. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. But yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are back towards the end of the international break. Things are winding down on that front and we're going to resume the back end of the 2020-2021 season and just like the rising tides in the Suez Canal we have resumed at just the right time to bring you all of the news in this global game that we love we're going to discuss many things on this episode like the international break the USA U23s failing to qualify for the Olympics some of the protests that we've seen from teams like Norway and Germany regarding the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. But first, I think it is appropriate that we discuss the big news surrounding one of the Premier League's legends who will be departing Manchester City at the end of the season. Yes, Man City and Sergio Aguero both jointly announced that he will be leaving the club at the end of the season. I think, Nathan, legend is the appropriate term for this player. He's delivered one of the greatest moments in soccer history, not only Premier League history, but soccer history. And he is one of the greatest goal-scoring records I think the modern game has ever witnessed. When you think of Sergio Aguero and when you heard this news, what was your reaction? Well, first of all, you can catch the audio of that goal in our in our lovely intro um, composed by Will Hattel. Yeah, I mean, I would say Aguero is is firmly the second best striker in Premier League history um, in my mind and has a legitimate argument to be among the, I would say, among the top 10 best strikers of all time. Um, and while his last couple of years um, have been more marred by injury, he's still a talented player. Um, but the injury concerns are are there. But all in all, it seems like a natural a natural parting point for him in the club. Um, just seeing where how he struggled to stay fit and where Pep wants to go with this sort of strikerless soccer, it definitely means that some team like there there is definitely going to be really fierce competition for his signature. Because you think about it, the kind of strikers who end up leaving on free transfers are oftentimes people like Chupomoting, you know, experienced players who can score like five to ten goals a year but are probably not ever going to be um, of the caliber that an Aguero-type player is. And, you know, Aguero still has probably one or two years left in him of playing at the highest level. So the question is, does he go to a team like Barcelona or PSG, or does he go to a a league like MLS, or does he go back to Argentina? 
I think those would be the three most likely destinations for him right now. The Premier League was definitely largely shaped by Aguero and how he led that city team for almost a decade. Yeah, Caleb. Definitely interesting questions regarding the future of Aguero. Obviously, Fabrizio Romano reporting that FC Barcelona are on his list and that maybe that they've even begun preliminary talks on a, on a discussing a potential move uh, to FC Barcelona. Obviously, Lionel Messi is one of his close personal friends. So I think from a Barcelona standpoint, I'm interested in hearing your viewpoint, but also just I think you and I are huge fans of Aguero. We've had several discussions on just how skillful watching this guy play his play his game was and, and just how incredible it was to like see some of the, the the things that he was able to do in tight spaces some of the finishes he was able to pull off so I guess just your reactions on Aguero leaving the Premier League and also about his potential future yeah I mean I, I guess first I'll just echo some of the things that Nathan said obviously he is you know one of the strikers of best strikers of the 21st century certainly one of the best strikers of the last decade and I think also, this is also a very natural parting point with City as well. In terms of his fit at Barcelona, I am not super supportive of bringing in Aguero just because it doesn't really seem to match where the team is going, which is a lot more youth-focused. I think if we got Aguero, it would indicate either we are simply unable, which is very likely, to get Depay or even Holland, which I think is even less likely. Or Messi pretty much tells Laporta, like, I will stay if you bring Aguero. In that sense, if Aguero just comes to make Messi stay, maybe it's worth it. But I think as a sporting move, it doesn't make a ton of sense because He's had injury problems the past two years. He very well could overcome them and and still be a you know 25-plus goal scorer for the next two years. But I think it's a risk, especially for the money. And so I expect him to go somewhere more like PSG, who you know doesn't really matter about the money and you know the French League is easy, or to do a like two-year stint in MLS for big money, score a bunch of goals, and then you know, retire to Argentina when he's like 34, 35. But I don't think that him coming to Barcelona is a great sign for the Laporta project. I think the MLS question is an interesting one because I think in the past two or so years, we've seen that those types of transfers, you know, the aging big name player coming over from Europe have been going out of style somewhat, I guess, into Miami are trying to keep it in style by signing the likes of Gonzalo Higuain and Blaise Matuidi. But I think that that would be the only team that I could really see him going to. I don't know if any other club would really have an interest in shilling out the amount of cash it would take to get Aguero on a long-term Zlatan-esque deal. I think the interesting question for me is that, obviously this season, Caleb, I think I wonder how many more points Barcelona would have on the board at this stage of the season had they had a way more clinical finisher in the fall from October to December-ish when like they were creating a lot of chances but Griezmann wasn't getting on the end of them, Braithwaite wasn't getting on the end of them, Dembele wasn't finishing his chances and I think some of that has carried over into the new year even even though their form has greatly improved. So I think if they can bring in someone like Aguero and he can stay fit for you know 25 games ish 
like would that greatly improve their chances of winning La Liga next season? I mean, obviously Aguero is a good soccer player. And in the abstract, you always want good soccer players to join your team. But I think that we're really, you know, trying to phase out all of the players in the team over the age of 32, which I think is Busquets, Messi, and PK. And so bringing in Aguero doesn't really move the team forward. It also creates a bunch of problems in terms of where Griezmann plays, especially if you assume that Ansu Fati is going to be back, you know, and fully fit for next year and Dembele will continue to grow into his role. So I don't know. I think it adds a lot of traffic and competition at those forward places in a way that will only be sort of destructive as our younger players, you know, actually start to grow into the team. Yeah, the, I think the other intriguing thing would be a potential return on maybe a one-year deal to Atleti if they um, if they don't win the league this year. Uh, obviously, he was part of that legendary Atleti strike pair, um, what, 11 years ago now or 12 years ago now? Um, but yeah, I agree. It also is just confusing because like, if you were going to let Luis Suarez go last August why would you bring in Aguero now? And admittedly, they're different types of players, but the age profile is so similar that it just doesn't, it would be another kind of directionless move and sort of biting off your nose to spite the face a little bit um, from, from Laporta. So I, I don't really see him being a fit at Barcelona, but you know that that's just where yeah. there's going to be their speculation, no matter whether, no matter if it makes sense or not, because that's just how Barcelona operates. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember, right, that like, the Suarez decision was a Bartomeu choice that was very unpopular with Messi because Suarez was one of his best friends. And so I don't think that we should like totally conflate, you know, the logic that led us to giving Suarez away and saying like, oh, it doesn't make sense to bring Aguero in. I think they're in two different administrations. I do think though it makes sense to not bring in an older player, but not because we got rid of Suarez, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the Atleti point is really interesting because they obviously just signed a big name free agent striker in Luis Suarez of a similar profile, like you're saying, Nathan. I could see that reunion happening, definitely, especially considering, you know, reunions like that have happened at Atleti in the past with Diego Costa and Fernando Torres. They're way more open to returning players in that way, but we shall see. Definitely, I'm going to miss watching Aguero play in the Premier League, although I'm definitely not going to miss the fear that runs through my veins every time I saw him play against Liverpool. I think Nathan can probably sympathize with that as well. Being oh an Arsenal God. fan is yeah, so I, I terrifying. Guess, yeah, I guess just to wrap up the this Aguero bit, I think what sets Aguero apart from every other striker in Premier League history, and even Thierry Henry, who I would say is, is an all-around better player than him on the balance of things, but not by much, um, is the fact that Aguero was the perfect combination type of forward who could both play as a poacher and sort of score goals from inside the box. But he was also such a, he was so technical and he could just bang in shots from wherever and his ability to create his own shots. I'm sort of sounding like a basketball player here, but like his ability to just score from situations that strikers shouldn't be able to score from oftentimes with like one touch or two touches or fewer is just terrifying. Um, and so I think that's, so that's sort of his lasting legacy in my mind. Dude, his turn on the swivel yeah, exactly. is, is better than any other one in the world. 
Yeah. I remember there's that goal that he scored in the, I think it was the 2018 World Cup against Iceland, where he picked up the ball on the penalty box. His back, his full back was literally two goal. And he was surrounded by about three or four Icelandic defenders. And he just found a way to like turn in the most minuscule amount of space and somehow come up with a goal. I have never experienced this with another player where like the ball arrives at his feet in the penalty in the penalty box and you're just like it doesn't it doesn't matter like what angle or what direction he picks up the ball and you're just you're doomed. I don't know. I I will definitely miss watching him play at his peak in the Premier League just cuz I think someone who has that eye for goal is so rare. And I yeah, I'll just I will miss watching Sergio Aguero. Good luck to him wherever he goes next. Lads, let's get into some of the highlights from the international break, beginning with, I think, some disappointment if you were a United States men's national team fan, particularly from the U23 side. Nathan, we saw them not progress to the Olympics for the third straight cycle. The U.S. men's U23 team falling in Guadalajara to Honduras, not qualifying for another Olympics. Huge blow for Jason Christ and this team. Where do you stand on this defeat? You know, the program going forward. And obviously this is in conjunction with the U.S. senior team playing some friendlies, some promising friendlies uh, against Jamaica and Northern Ireland and Europe. So I think there's some positive to take from this international break, but also I think a massive negative with the U.S. not featuring at yet another Olympic Games. Yeah, well, I think it's, first of all, it's important to contextualize the fact that most of the best U23 players who would have been available for this entire qualifying cycle weren't able to play on this team, either because their clubs wouldn't let them go or because they were playing at a more senior level. And so it's kind of, in my mind, it's really just poor um, squad management by the US MNT and, and, and USSF as a whole in not getting players like maybe not Christian Pulisic because he's clearly far beyond this level. But, you know, you think of other players like Eunice Musa or Gio Reyna or, you know, half Brendan Aronson, Daryl DK, Chris Richards, Luca De La Torre, like going down the bench of the players who were available for the, for the senior side and thinking about how much more of an impact they could have made for us soccer. And the fact that they haven't qualified for an Olympics now in what 12 years is, but it's it's unsurprising, but keep in mind that the Olympic men's soccer tournament isn't as big as women's Olympic soccer, and it's also not as marquee of an event in general. Um, but it's still, this is the kind of game that the U.S. had to win, regardless of whether or not they had their full side, their full strength side. You cannot be losing to like an, quote, uh, an inferior CONCACAF team, even with you know, maybe your maybe your U23 B team or U23 C team. Like, it's just inexcusable. And you could see it. Like, this team had absolutely no tactical guidance aside from like, like it was it was so embarrassing and so frustrating to watch because it's that kind of like regressive, like, let's just put out a bunch of players who are talented enough and let them play mentality that just doesn't work. And it's it's really unbefitting for America and very, very frustrating um as a fan. Yeah, I, I agree with all of those points, Nathan, especially about the squad management. It really baffles me how they couldn't make space or chose not to make space for some of those 18-year-olds on the U.S. men's team. 
Because I think you can say to a player like Gio Reyna or Yunus Musso or some of the other players you mentioned that like, hey, I know it's not a USMNT cap, but we haven't qualified for this tournament in a while. And in a lot of ways, you know, this is a potentially, you know, like podium opportunity for the United States. And even like a bronze medal at the Olympics would be a massive statement, you know, six years or five years before the World Cup in the U.S. So massive missed opportunity. Also, even players like Pulisic were saying that like he was interested in potentially being one of the, I guess what he, he wouldn't even be an overage player, but he was no, interested. Yeah. <laughs> he was interested in being like a part of that team. And so I think it's a massive wasted opportunity from the U.S. men's national team that, you know, a win over Northern Ireland while nice, you know, doesn't really make up for it. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point, Caleb, about the just the importance of the Olympics, you know, both in the for the global brand of U.S. soccer and also for these players. I think you saw in 2016 in Rio in that Olympic Games final that Brazil won via penalties. Neymar was weeping openly on the field for winning an Olympic medal. I think you think about, you know, what Marcelo Bielsa was able to achieve with Argentina at the Olympics. I think these things really matter, both to soccer federations and to players. And if you're the U.S., I think it's really hard to grow a program with a lot of promising players if you're not even going to be at these significant tournaments. Yeah, I th- oh, sorry. Keep going. No, I, yeah, I, I take it away. But I think that's just really my. I think it's a missed opportunity in that way, because in order for the U.S. to grow, they need to be appearing consistently at these important games and important tournaments. Yeah, and also just like there is a pretty strong correlation between teams that appear in the Olympics and teams that do well or appear in the World Cup. Thirteen of sixteen teams. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia article for that 2016 Olympic Games because I I didn't have all the the details committed to memory but I believe 13 of the 16 teams that were in that uh, or sorry that's wrong nine of the 12 teams no I was right sorry 13 of the 16 teams I'm not good at math Um, 13 of the 16 teams that were in this tournament wound up playing at the World Cup and as we are well familiar with being Americans World Cup qualification even in CONCACAF which is you know relatively weak compared to to most um, continental organizations, World Cup qualifying is is no sure thing whatsoever. It's like, I can understand why, you know, maybe we didn't have our best players there. And given COVID and travel times, and the fact that this tournament um, took place over the course of like 12 days, so players would have had to arrive earlier, et cetera, et cetera. But it really spoke to me. And I said something about this in the chat to the lack of like true innovative American managerial skills and how we see pretty consistently the same group of guys from the same coaching tree get the jobs with the U.S. Federation, particularly on the men's side. And whereas in other nations, you you might see um, these U23 rules being given to guys who are, or to coaches rather, who are maybe up and coming, um, who have some sort of tactical or managerial experience but want to be a little bit more nuanced um the u.s roles are just given to guys who sort of fit the bill for how the player the 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 bureaucrats at ussf want their teams to be run and so it's it's u.s soccer has a ton of issues and i mean a ton it's it's just really frustrating to see in action and it's it's 
very, very, very irritating. I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, yeah, you, uh, Jason Christ, the coach of the U23 team, was someone who couldn't get another head coaching position in MLS and is currently an MLS assistant. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't really speak on his, his coaching qualifications, but I think just is he the guy that you want coaching this juncture of American talent, especially this um, young American talent? I think that that's the question, Caleb. Yeah, there, there, there are multiple parts to this. Yeah, massive missed opportunity, if only to get some competitive reps in. Two, it demonstrates, you know, all the problems the U.S. has with coaching. But three, it, it is just slightly worrying how the U.S. struggles against opposition that they should easily overwhelm. There should be about 25 teams worth of US U23 players that can beat the Honduras U23 team. Just given the fact that we are a nation of what 330 million odd people. Yes, we did not put all of the theoretically best talent we had in there and that's a problem, but I think it's a little concerning it should have been that enough. it should have been enough. It should have been enough and it wasn't. And so this is little this is like Trinidad and Tobago part 2 that's not quite as important but shows that like these are not one-off events, as Nathan mentioned, and speak to a kind of failure of management, imagination, infrastructure, everything at the heart of the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, and the players on this Honduras team, just to like contextualize it, you know, one of their goalies is a current player at the University of Kentucky. You know, like these are NCAA level players. And, you know, you have a player on uh, Rio Grande FC. Yeah, so you have a USL player. You have one player who's in the MLS, but then the vast majority of this team um, plays in the domestic league, um, you know, in Honduras, which is not one of the premier leagues. It's just, yeah, it's it's, it's exactly analogous to Trinidad and Tobago in my mind. Except no waterlogged pitch this time. To use yeah, there excuse. isn't even that excuse. Exactly. Yep. Anyways, let's move from one side of the world to another Lads, I think there was a, a promising trend starting to pop up this past international break when we saw first Norway, the likes of Erling Holland and Martin Odegaard, sporting shirts in protest of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, a project that has seen the death of several migrant workers who have traveled to the country to hastily build uh, stadiums and facilities for that World Cup, that competition. And I think... It was equally promising to see Germany pick up that mantle of protest in their last international international fixture, uh, sporting a very similar T-shirt in protest. I think this is obviously, you know, a story that is in its infancy right now as we chart, like, the amount of people who are coming out in protest of this World Cup. It is only a year away, which is kind of crazy to say. Caleb, what, what is your kind of reaction to seeing these images and also as we start the discourse surrounding the approaching world cup how do you think it's going to manifest into maybe something bigger oh i mean i think it's really important and it you know just to put a finer point on it it's not just a few migrant workers we're talking about like thousands of people over six thousand deaths that essentially are stuck in this country essentially slave-like conditions who died building stadiums in a country that has no soccer tradition and had no real right to host this to begin with. I think the strongest comments have actually come today from Tony Kreuss, 
where he just said it was wrong that Qatar was awarded the World Cup because of the human rights issues, the work you know conditions, that not being a soccer country. He also talked about how you know the anti-gay and anti-LGBTQ laws in that nation. The point is this is just such a bad look for FIFA that we all know is corrupt. And I'm not really sure how all of these player and team protests are going to play out, but nations should kind of agree together or players should agree amongst themselves to sort of not comply in various ways with certain like promotional aspects of this tournament um, or different like optics that, you know, the Qataris want to make them do because it really is just like utterly insane to me that this is happening and and that the whole soccer world is being forced to accommodate it by changing you know league schedules everything like this was a massive choice in a completely you know unnatural outside contender to host this tournament um I'm just starting to ramble right now, but like I'm, I'm just like truly baffled that this is really happening, and I'm at least glad that the players are not ignorant of the larger stakes of this tournament. It feels worse than having the World Cup get awarded to Russia, because even though we all know that 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 deal was suspect, and Russia as a nation has a ton a ton of issues and Brazil of course had its its own issues of, of bribery and corruption and whatnot. This feels a lot worse just because of how manufactured it is um, and the degrees of financial support that I think are involved in it. And I don't know, we might have to edit this out because I don't know if you like, if we want to keep it on there, but like the fact that Qataris, uh, or at least the state or the states the state of Qatar is is trying to promote themselves as some kind of like supremely progressive nation where you know by having people um like talk about gender equality at like the Yale soccer conference and stuff like that True. like it's that just this, no that's this is like there's just this massive cognitive dissonance and then you have the instance where um at that at the Italian Super Cup final maybe or was it the Copa del Rey final where you had um you know woman referees it was the Club World Cup wasn't it or the, or the, the Club World Cup yeah I'm sorry I forget which which event it actually was but where um, I guess like the male delegates of the state of Qatar were refusing to acknowledge, but not just like refusing to acknowledge in a way that would be like compliant with religion. It was just like very blatantly disrespectful. And so I don't know, there's, there's a whole lot going on. And I think that the best solution to it um, would be a boycott. And this has happened before where teams have boycotted the World Cup going back to Ghana in 1966. Otherwise, I kind of get the sense that teams and players are just going to be forced to fall in line um, due to the amount of money and the, the the geopolitics of it all. But very, very disheartening. The interesting tidbit from that Tony Kroos interview that Caleb brought up was that he said that by no means is he saying that players should boycott the 2022 World Cup. In fact, that he, he says that like it's even more imperative that they do play the tournament, which I think kind of leads to, to that point Nathan was saying that I think it is going to go forward in relatively normal fashion, sadly. I do think that this leads into, you know, a broader discussion over 
things that we're seeing with UEFA and their pushing through of a Swiss format, the Champions League, that's going to lead to way more revenue, way more match days, and way more of the established superpowers of the game getting essentially just way more power and way more monetary value uh, out of their investment of these clubs and by extension these players. I'm I'm happy that a lot of these players are taking very public stances on what is an incredibly gross thing that FIFA is is enabling to go forward. Like you, Nathan, I think I am just a little skeptical as to you know what we'll see you know, in November 2022, when this tournament rolls around. I think John Oliver put it best in 2014 when talking about the World Cup in Brazil. The positive buzz around the World Cup, just beginning, is always going to be so, so powerful. Like, people love the World Cup. People get out of bed for the World Cup. People, like, you know, mark their calendars for this event. It's something that I think in many ways unites the world. And I think it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Don't get me wrong, like every nation has issues. Um, it's just some are more like endemic than others. Like I, I would imagine that say the US had been awarded um the World Cup in 2022 instead of 2026. I wouldn't be surprised if there were the si- similar kinds of protests around police brutality or other kind of inequalities that are, you know, endemic to to the United States. Um, but it, it feels very different. Um, when you consider the fact that, you know, the season had to be significantly altered, um, the use of migrant labor is particularly abhorrent, I think. Um, like the death totals are just shocking. It's, it's yeah, it's it's bad. And FIFA is a bad organization that is is globally exempt from a lot of things. Um, and that, that has to change. And if you want to if you want to find out more in depth about, you know, what's going on in, in Qatar regarding the migrant regarding migrant workers and, you know, their construction of stadiums and, and all sorts of vile and abhorrent things, I would go and look out the Guardian's pieces on this issue. I'll actually link to them in the podcast description if you want to read more in depth about some of these things. They actually put some names to faces of some of these migrant workers, which is very good that they were able to go and do that. Uh, and it's extremely sad that that what is happening to them is happening, you know, all for the sake of, of a sport. But yeah, Caleb, just to, I don't know, your final thoughts on this and where you think this could go going forward. I don't expect a boycott, but I also would not be surprised if this is the type of situation where players have, you know, shirts under shirts. And when they score a goal, they release some type of critical message. Um, And I think it's important that players consider the options that they have to levy a critique at this tournament. Because I think we need to, I think as much as we can be like, we're critiquing Qatar, really fundamentally what we need to make clear here, what, you know, people in power need to do is to make it clear that like FIFA made a choice to support the happening of this event at this place. And FIFA needs to have better standards as it considers where it hosts events of international importance like the World Cup in the future. Yeah, I mean, I you say FIFA made a choice. I think there's also money involved. And I, don't forget that, you know, in the last decade or so, more and more of FIFA's executive members have come under investigative scrutiny for um, what amounts to, to, to bribery. And what oh, right, and, right. and FIFA, FIFA is sort of caught between being a global political body, um, more similar to like 
the not I'm not going to say the United Nations, but it has all of these members and it has sort of real economic power in this sense, but it's also completely unregulated and controlled by a handful of basically elite bureaucrats. So it, it's sort of caught between being a sporting body and being a political one. And um, it leads to bad results like this. Yeah, I mean, it's a monopoly, right? It has a monopoly on world soccer. And monopolies are essentially just miniature governments. Right. And I think they're also at the mercy of all of their sponsors, too. I think you saw in Brazil, like the, the sale of alcohol was banned at sporting events. But since Budweiser was one of the leading sponsors of the World Cup, that had to be changed. So that at, at games of the 2014 World Cup, they were able to sell Budweiser products and beer and alcohol. And so I think they, they come into these countries who host the World Cup. They drain finances from them. They put up their own regulations and then they just kind of leave. They take the money and they say peace and they go to the next nation. We deal with this issue every four years. And I think you're right, Caleb, when you say that in order to hold you know FIFA accountable, I think this needs to be a continued discussion over the course of the next year, two years as we ramp up to this tournament. FIFA, somehow still a nonprofit organization, by the way. Uh, Wonderful. Interesting classification or self-classification. But yeah, I think that you put a period on that discussion. We, I'm sure we will come back to it uh, as we get closer and closer to the tournament and as more things develop in that space. But gents, are there any other things that we want to touch on before? Uh, oh, before yes. Up here? Yes. Can we please talk about Frank DeBoer? Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Nathan, do you want to... <laughs> Do you want? Do you want to intro us into the oh, <laughs> the wacky I, world of this be, of the Dutch national coach Frank de Boer? It would be my pleasure. So Frank de Boer has sort of become the the butt of a number of jokes from everyone, from like the casual pundits to to, to actual um, managers like Jose Mourinho, or as some but, would say, de butt. Yes, de butt. But Frank de Boer, as a player, was. Legendary, I would say, you know, made almost 350 appearances for Ajax and another 150 for Barca. Um, but as a manager, it has been a, uh, a less than ideal um, career in many ways. He got the he got the Ajax job back in 2010 um, and played some what is regarded by a number of Ajax fans as some of the worst um, sort of anti Ajax football that you've ever seen. Um, he then briefly managed briefly managed Inter Milan before having a two-month stint or a three-month stint at Crystal Palace, winding up managing the best team in MLS history, um, coming off of a record-setting campaign in Atlanta United uh, before getting sacked from that job as well, before continuing to fall upwards once uh, Komen was appointed the Barcelona manager and taking a Dutch national team that was looking like real Euro dark horses and turning them into... Um, the kind of team that would not qualify for any major tournament. So I, I, I didn't really do, I don't really do justice to how bad a manager he is. And don't, I have nothing against him as a person. Like I, he was, a, I'm sure a fine player and I'm sure he's a fine person, but his managerial experiences have just been so poor and it's baffling how he wound up managing the, one of the most talented Dutch national teams um, in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, it's incredible how this guy just keeps falling up in the world of soccer. Uh, even though, you know, going to Atlanta United at that point was a huge deal, just considering they were coming off the back of 
uh, winning a, t- a championship in you know one of their first seasons I-, I think he's very much responsible for you know their downturn in fortunes as of late overall there's an issue with the dutch national team and how they go about appointing managers i think since van hall louis van hall in like 2014 ish they've they've had a, a spotty track record i would say of you know appointing dutch coaches i don't think there's as many great dutch coaches in the world of soccer as there was you know 20 to 25 years ago so i think that that is an issue and that's probably why you know you're seeing guys like de boer take up that post but <laughs> i mean he had a brief foray in the premier league i think that's probably you know what a lot of people know him from his four games in charge of crystal <laughs> palace in which he won zero and jose Mourinho has since labeled him as the worst ever manager in the history of the Premier League. So yeah, it's certainly not looking good for Frank DeBoer, but I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to see how this team performs uh, in the Euros this summer. I don't think it's going to go well, but it is certainly going to be an interesting watch. I mean, like Frank DeBoer is like the classic story, I feel, of just because you're a good soccer player doesn't mean you're a good coach. Um, but unfortunately... You know, he is like a truly like legendary Dutch player. You know, teams continue to be so starstruck by him that he sort of weasels his way into jobs. I mean, I think the Euros coming up will be massively important for his career because he is 50. It's not like he's like that young and this is his first job. I mean, he's into his, what is it, fifth managerial job now and if he's trying to break back into club football i don't think this netherlands stint is you know that convincing especially as nathan said given the quality that this team has from from front to back really yeah and you look at the fact that he only lasted he lasted less than three months at inter he lasted less than two months at crystal palace and then in a league that should have been um, easy enough to dominate with some of the best ever players in MLS. Um, he lasted less than 18 months. Um, and then you look at the, some of the results that this Netherlands team has had since he was appointed. They lost 1-0 to Italy, 1-0 to Mexico. They then had three successive draws with Bosnia, Italy, and Spain. And then just this last week, they got absolutely dominated um, by Turkey. Uh, and they currently sit second in a, in a qualifying group, which includes Gibraltar, Latvia, Norway, and Montenegro. A little concerning. Um, and yes, you know, Memphis Depay was injured for some of those games, but this is a really talented um, golden generation for Dutch soccer right now. Um, you think about that great Ajax class of a few years ago, players like De Ligt, um, you know, obviously Frankie de Jong, you just—it's—it's it's remarkable how quickly their their fortunes have turned. Caleb, your 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 point about how great soccer players don't always make great managers is is very 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 uh, poignant here. It's really important for the listeners to recognize how unusual it is to be sacked only 14, 15 games into a managerial stint at Inter Milan. How truly unusual it is to be sacked after you know less than 10 games at crystal palace like you need to be really really bad to lose your job that quickly in soccer like really really bad like, in oh, fact, yeah. name, name another coach name another coach that has lost a job 
that quickly from purely like sporting reasons, not because they're like a Bielsa type who just like decides to like. No, in, in the, in, especially in top level soccer, the reasons why managers lose jobs quickly is because they clash with management, like with upper tier management, with the right. ownership. I think the, the most recent example was Nigel Pearson at Watford, who was actually doing a, a pretty decent job with the situation that he was given last season, but he was sacked with only like three games remaining in the season or something. But even that was that wasn't because of sporting reasons. This was purely because the chairman at Crystal Palace was like, "Okay, this is awful to watch. We're clearly not going on anywhere under this coach, and we have to make a change." And that's how they eventually got to Roy Hodgson, who's done a pretty reasonable job since succeeding De Boer. But yeah, I think it's a really unique situation <laughs> that he wasn't given more than four games uh, to prove himself in the Premier League. But it'll be interesting to see how he handles the pressure as the Dutch coach. I'm not convinced that it's going to go super well. Uh, it definitely, he's been he's been saying in the media over the past couple of weeks that he wants Virgil van Dijk back in his squad for the Euros. I think if I was him, I would definitely want Virgil back too because it might uh, spare some of his some of his blushes. Uh, before we go, obviously the last time you heard us, Caleb and I discussed some of the. Champions League quarterfinal draws. Those ties begin next week. And I thought just before we head out, Nathan, you could give us some of your quick predictions for the Champions League quarterfinals. Well, first of all, I really enjoyed listening to the to, to your pod. I listened to it um, on my drive the other day. I also, I, I tended to, so you guys were pretty much unanimous except for with your Real Madrid-Liverpool picks, I believe, going back to that one. Yeah. Um, I think I think City roll through Dortmund. Um, but it's probably going to be a high scoring affair. Uh, but I think they win, you know, by by four or more goals across the two legs. Porto Chelsea is going to be really interesting because of Porto's ability to to be that kind of giant killer. But I still think Chelsea go through just on form. Um, now with the news that Lewandowski is going to be out for the PSG tie um, between Bayern and PSG, which is definitely the marquee tie of the round. But I, I, that's the one that I'm the least positive about. Um, uh, it really depends on how Bayern manage tactically uh, without Lewandowski um, and whether PSG can perform on the biggest of stages. And then Real Madrid-Liverpool, I think, is going to be really, really close. I think Liverpool will go through, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's very low scoring and gets decided in extra time or you know by one goal or fewer across the two legs. So that's sort of where I'm at with those four ties. It'll be interesting to see what goes down. I think that Lewandowski injury is certainly a shocker, and I think it could have a ripple effect throughout the rest of the competition and maybe potentially the Bundesliga season because that race is particularly close You know, as we hit the, the final stretch of, of the German campaign. I expect to see a lot more of Jamal Musiala in these ties in these next few mm. games for Bayern. So it'll be interesting to see how he performs you know, as he makes that big step up potentially into the starting 11 for these really important ties for Munich. German international, Jamal Musiala. Ripped <laughs> away from the grips of the English, as well as Eunice Musa, who had uh, declared for the U.S. men's national team as well. But Caleb, any more thoughts? No, I think if I was a, a magic eight ball and you you know, shook me around a little bit, I would respond with the ask me again later. <laughs> Oh. Someone, has to photo, someone has to photoshop that that image so I, think, I think i'm good yeah 
Okay. Well, maybe a bit more of a serious episode than we anticipated, but there's some steer- there's some uh, serious stuff going on in the world of soccer uh, right now. Uh, we didn't even get on the record about Gareth Bale elbowing uh, oh, Kudala, but we can save that maybe for when we talk about Arsenal versus uh, Slavia Prague at some point next week. Yeah. Arsenal-Liverpool this weekend. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Less than big. ideal. Less than ideal game to have after the international break and Leipzig versus Bayern on the same day. Yeah. Big, big weekend of soccer. We're coming back with a big weekend of soccer. Obviously, the Champions League ties this week, and then next weekend is the big one. It is El Clasico. So we'll have plenty to discuss in the coming weeks, in the coming days. But until then, I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Reds. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time.